and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. The Society is pleased to bring you a recording of its recent webinar event, Cyber Hygiene During COVID-19. Chaired by SOCLA Director Sean Brady, this webinar includes valuable insight from Brendan Reed and Vishka Paris of Quartamantha in Brisbane on why the current landscape means it is more important than ever to ensure you are taking the appropriate steps to avoid putting your data into the hands of criminals, as well as tips to avoid it. I'll say that it inspired me to purchase antivirus software before the webinar had even concluded. So with that, I will say thanks again, and we hope you enjoy hearing from Brendan and Vishka. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Society of Construction Law webinar. I'm Sean Brady. I'm a board member of the Society of Construction Law. I'm the chair of the events subcommittee. Welcome to our online seminars um, because of COVID-19. And today we're going to talk about cyber hygiene in COVID-19. We're all working from home. Uh, we're all Zooming each other. We're all doing a whole range of different things. How do we make sure we stop our data falling into the hands of criminals? We have two speakers, Brendan and Vishka. I'll introduce both of them now, um, and then I'll be back for questions at the end. Uh, Brendan Reed is a former detective from the Queensland Police High Tech Crime Investigation Unit, and he has experience in investigating criminal and civil matters, and he helps clients to navigate technologies and their use in the collection and preservation of evidence. And he has over 15 years experience in giving evidence in criminal and civil cases. Uh, Vishka Perez, um, before he joined Cordamenta's uh, forensic technology team in 2015, he worked in a whole range of, of IT roles. And now he takes that specialist knowledge and he assists in digital forensic investigations and forensic discovery matters. Vishka has experience in working on high profile investigations, including cyber incidents, IP theft, uh, corporate fraud and financial crime. So with that introduction, I will hand you over to Brendan and I will see everyone at the end for questions. So as um, COVID-19 has spread as a pandemic across the world over the past couple of months, many companies have been forced to either shut down completely or immediately move to a model where employees are able to efficiently operate remotely. While some companies are already prepared to work remotely, many are not and are scrambling to put systems in place to keep staff operational. Either way, internal IT teams and business leaders are stretched as they work towards meeting the needs of their staff, client, and workplace requirements. As businesses rush to meet these challenges, from a technology perspective, there's a real shift in the landscape due to the lack of preparation time. We see two major stresses at play. Firstly, the IT teams may not have had adequate time and bandwidth to configure security controls and test technologies before being deployed. From my time working in IT roles, I know how much planning and development goes into implementing new business critical systems, which is now what these remote working systems are, as the majority of businesses just cannot function through this pandemic without them. So just to bring everyone into the picture, the general implementation lifecycle for a new system can take months, starting with the development and testing phase, which would involve configuring the security and uh, compatibility testing with the existing systems followed by a quality assurance and disaster recovery testing phase, and only then the system will be implemented into the production environment. 
Due to the immediate effect of COVID-19 and pressure from business to maintain operations, IT teams just don't have the time to follow a standard process when implementing these new systems. The second major stressor is staff training, ensuring that staff are trained in the use of new platforms and following best practices for data security is always key. Users are just not prepared for managing IT security risks while operating outside of traditional office environment, which makes them more prone and susceptible to phishing email attacks, plugging in unknown devices from home, connecting through an unsecure network, or accidentally installing malicious applications, and also the security of devices of which could be company assets all come into play when working remotely. These are clear risks to security of managing your company and client data, which has all been intensified with the focus by external actors on COVID-19. This all comes at a time where businesses face an uncertain future and economic pressure, cash flow and cost management is high on the agenda for many business leaders, and now to add to the stress of an increased risk of data incidents, which may require further investigation and potential mandatory reporting, which at this time could be crippling for a business. So with this background in the forefront of your minds, we want to talk you through some of the data risks that we have been seeing and assisted with, which will give us insights into how the criminals are operating, how these risks can affect your business or clients, and hopefully each of you will walk away with some practical steps you or your organisation can take to minimise data risk. It is important to note there's no silver bullet to deal with the problem of data security. There's no one simple fix as we live in a world where we are so reliant on technology for personal and professional reasons, and now even more so with COVID-19 clearly demonstrating this. I'll hand back over to Brendan to share some insight in some matters that we have been involved in recently, which exposes the risk we have spoken about and how they can have an impact on businesses within the construction sector. Um, so I'm just going to talk about a, a case study here. There's a couple that I'll cover in terms of the presentations. This will just be the first one. Um, so in this particular scenario, the, the leadership within this corporate client uh, was providing enormous amounts of pressure for the IT team to implement a file sharing platform. The idea of the platform was to provide a secure method for the business to share confidential data with all of their clients and vice versa. Due to those time constraints, security protocols and best practices, which would normally have been followed, uh, which Fish touched on, were not. Um, there was no documentation created after implementation, no training sought out for either the best way to implement the platform or, or how the users were even to interact with the system. And as a result of the users incorrectly interacting with the system's security set settings, which they should never had access to in the first place and was not even being monitored, uh, exposed the entire corpus of sensitive and confidential client data sitting in that repository. So, in effect, the entire data set was now unprotected on the internet for anyone to access. And the real scary part of this was that the company had no idea that their client data was publicly available and only became aware of it after being contacted by a third party. So, after the investigation was completed, the actual exposure period for the client data was identified as being over two years. So with the current environment that we're going through, I believe it won't be difficult for a similar situation to occur as businesses move quickly to keep up with productivity. So just uh, moving on to another case, I um, just want to touch on, there was a recent case that uh, Vish and I worked on involving a construction and a property investment com company that was based on the Gold Coast in Queensland. This cyber attack was different in some aspects to what we would normally see. The construction company had contacted their client uh, which was an investment firm seeking payment in relation to an outstanding invoice. 
uh, and that invoice was for a significant amount of money. The client responded advising that they'd already made payment to the nominated bank account as provided in a recent email, which was forwarded to the construction company as confirmation. So the construction company received the email and immediately able to confirm that they had not sent uh, that email to the client regarding uh, updated banking details. The client has then accused the construction company of being compromised, uh, which has then kicked off an investigation into the matter. And what we're able to uncover uh, is what we would refer to as conversation hijacking. Now, this type of attack happens after a, a bad actor through an external threat um, has get, already gained access uh, to an internal account, uh, and this particular instance was an email account. They insert themselves into a legitimate conversation thread uh, by spinning up a look-alike domain and effectively removing the compromised third party and so isolating that email thread to just uh, the external uh, hacker and the new victim, uh, which in this case was this investment firm. Now, so why is this uh, a major concern for us uh, in the construction space? So the victim had already uh, established a rapport with what they thought was a legitimate recipient. Um, so this might be someone they, um, they email on a regular basis, it might be someone that they've talked with over the phone or even met in person. And sometimes the only clue will be a very subtle difference in the email address uh, or the domain of the compromised party. So if the recipient of the conversation is on their mobile device, for example, uh, they're distracted or not in the practice of double checking the actual email senders from address, they can easily fall victim to this type of attack. So even if one of your clients is actually affected through a similar attack, you might also want to ensure that you're advising your own teams to be on high alert. So for the construction company on the Gold Coast, they were also targeted a couple of months after the initial incident by an external actor. Uh, but they were able to move quickly uh, and were able to stop the threat of any loss of data uh, to a third party. Um, when we think about construction projects, um, the in industry-specific risks you should be turning your mind to are issues such as uh, a mobile workforce. Big construction projects will bring large mobile workforces. These workforces are made up of various units, with some of the workforce being in remote, mobile or, or temporary sites. And traditionally, the data security at these temporary sites may not be as effective as what we would normally see in an office environment. And these large construction projects will carry on a number of years and normally will involve joint venture setups and collaboration between multiple parties. So this means that there can be data moved to various locations where each location in itself can be a risk of compromise if the appropriate security is not implemented. Even think about the aspect of a dispute uh, rising after the project is actually finished and thinking about how parties are sharing data. On a number of occasions, um, even more, most recently, uh, I've worked on another matter where parties that are in dispute and are handing over data to each other in terms of a production, not giving any thought to the actual devices that they're handing over and uh, not realising that if those devices had stored data previously, that that data may actually be recoverable uh, and cause a risk uh, to the actual disclosure process. Also, during the length of the project, you might see a high turnover of staff, whether it be subcontractors or even direct employees to the company. So think about managing the initial and ongoing cyber security training of these people, uh, and that can be very difficult to do and poses a major risk. And the final point on this slide is also to consider that the attack may not necessarily be looking at stealing data, 
but might also be focused on just purely disruption to the business. So ransomware attacks uh, in particular, which are a type of malware, which will infect a compromised system, which will pretty, pretty much totally lock down any access to the data. So this can impact critical systems such as email servers, project management systems. So just in the past week, the beverage maker Lion was hit with a cyber attack uh, and they suffered a major blow in terms of uh, a disruption to their supply chain. If you think of your own projects, uh, large projects that you might be involved in, being hit with a ransomware attack and not being able to have access to email data, project management system data, and the effect that that will have in terms of the project and the costs involved in that. So also another main focus of attacks uh, is actually phishing email attacks. Um, and I'll just hand it back over to Vish and he'll go through those in more detail now. So the old phishing campaigns, um, they've been around since the dawn of emails. They're talked about at every cyber security conference. Um, and the main reason for this is that they're just still so successful. Phishing emails are still the number one vector for the cause of data breaches, not just in Australia, but across the globe. And the reason for this is that phishing campaigns are so easy for hackers to set up since they're not actually doing any hacking. The victim is doing all the hard work for them. So instead of the hacker spending months trying to breach company security systems, all they need, need is for one person in the organization to click a link and enter in their credentials and they're in. That's all it takes. Research is at the Barracuda Networks, which is an IT company that provides network security to over 200,000 corporates, reported that the first signs of coronavirus-related email attacks started flowing through in January, and then in the first three weeks of March, it exploded with a spike of 667% over February, which equated to more than 9,000 incidents reported by their clients, all within the first three weeks of March. So if this is where it's at at the end of March, we can only imagine what the stats are going to be like in the next sort of six months to time. Now, receiving a phishing email, sorry, it's not a case of if, it's when. If IT systems, even when in place, are configured correctly, do work well to capture most of these types of emails, some will always get through. All it takes is for one employee to click on the link and their credentials are stolen or their computer is compromised. Then think about who that person is in the organisation. What data would that individual potentially have access to which is now exposed. If it's a work email account, what other credentials or company informations may be buried in the thousands of emails that exist in their account? And what other systems will those credentials have access to? Once they're inside the network or have compromised the device, you're most likely not going to be aware of the unauthorized access for months. During this time, they'll be trawling through your network, looking for ways to actually trade information or disrupt and take control over the systems. According to IBM Security Cost of Data Breach Report in 2019, the average time to identify a breach in 2019 was 206 days, which is consistent to what we're seeing on some of the matters that we've been involved in. By default, we're trained to look for irregularities in email communications, which would trigger a red flag. Normally, an email outlining payment details being changed or receiving an invoice, which is clearly being modified to even winning a, a lottery in some foreign country would normally make us stop, evaluate and investigate the legitimacy of the email. Now the scary situation that we see we're facing with COVID-19 phishing attacks is that people are desperately wanting to know more information, especially when it appears to be coming from a legitimate source like a health authority or government body. If you think of your own personal work email account and the number of emails you've received over the past few weeks with COVID-19 in the title, you may have opened one without giving it any second thought, 
any one of those could have the potential to be a phishing email, which could compromise your system or steal credentials. The external actors know this and they create their marketing campaigns specifically to exploit PayPal's vulnerability as much as possible throughout this time. In Australia, we've seen the COVID-19 curve flatten, but the statistics that we're seeing in the cyberspace, we just don't see the cyber attacks curve flattening anytime soon. So what, what you can expect to see in terms of phishing email, um, the attack can, can occur through a user clicking an embedded link or opening an attachment. So depending on the security that your um, systems are set up, the attachments are normally picked up by spam filters and email filters, um, firewalls, AV protection, and should be less of a risk um, to your business, but they still exist. The bigger risk is the links, and sometimes the links alone do not give rise to identifying whether it is a legitimate site. Uh, normally a user with their mouse uh, could hover, hover over the link and see what the URL or the website uh, would be visited if they clicked that link. An example of where this can become problematic is when the external actor uses such services as uh, bit.ly and tiny.url, and these sites are designed to shrink a very large URL um, like a website address into a very small character count link. These sorts of service are, services are widely popular and used across social media. In this format, the URL or the website is not able to be easily identified by hovering over the link. So the user would need to take a further step of running a reverse search through another website to identify whether it's uh, a risk. Another method used by external actors is a trick is to trick the user that the linked URL is correct by swapping components of the URL around. And I use a term called typoglycemia, and this is a principle um, that re relates to when a reader can comprehend text despite spelling errors and mi misplaced letters in the words. So I'm sure everyone who's listening has probably seen a word that's been sent to them on an email or, or, or written in a document and all the right letters are in the word, um, but they're put in a different position and they can still read that word and understand what that word is. And this is the situation that we've got here. So they use real components of the real URL mixed around in an attempt not to cause a red flag when the user is actually uh, reviewing it. So then we move to the same style of attack, but delivered by way of SMS messages. So the links that are embedded in SMS messages are more problematic to check. So the sender ID uh, can be modified to appear to come from a legitimate source, such as a health authority or a legitimate business or a government entity, uh, so for example, MyGov. The embedded links will normally send the user to a malicious site where malicious code is uploaded to the device. Currently, there are mobile OS-specific uh, Trojans. Uh, one in particular is called Sebius, which is specifically designed to compromise Android devices. So features including the ability to take screenshots, hijacking SMS messages, stealing contact lists, stealing account credentials, and much more. So this Trojan could easily be deployed after a user has clicked on a link and has the ability to unlock and control the device remotely, even when the user is asleep. And it even has the ability to access the Google Authenticator, which is your two-factor authentication platform where your codes are kept. These stolen codes can be used to bypass the additional two-factor authentication security layers on online services such as banks, email services, messaging apps, and social media networks, just to name a few.
So to ensure you have the best chance of protection, you need to ensure that you keep your operating system up to date with the latest patches and even consider installing an AV application as well. And back over to Vish. Thanks, Brendan. The external actors are constantly monitoring and keeping up to date on how we're operating remotely, including our increase in reliance in video conferencing applications. There's been an increase in the number of domain registrations that are similar to legitimate video conferencing platforms such as Zoom. Using Zoom as an example, since the beginning of the year, more than 1,700 new domains were registered containing the term Zoom. 25% of those alone were registered in the last month. Now, these domains and websites can be used in phishing campaigns, which may look like a standard email or calendar invite, maybe to a software webinar, but the link embedded in the email may lead to a URL which looks like the official Zoom website, but instead is used as a method to deploy infected versions of the conferencing software that, when installed, can compromise the user's device without knowing, providing remote access to the attacker or deploying ransomware, all while looking and functioning like the legitimate software. Now, with that scary thought, I'll hand you back over to Brendan just to talk about some of the ways that we can mitigate the risk and how you can better protect yourself and company from these types of risks and attacks. So some key mitigation strategies. So from a business uh, perspective, I'm I'm not going to cover exactly how to implement these strategies, but more just talk to them. So you need to inform and educate your people on the risks. Uh, Education and training on new systems and best practices for operating uh, on those systems remotely. You need to also think about geolocation blacklisting. And this is a method of blocking specific IP addresses that are based on a particular country uh, or even if they're an unknown IP to the business. You need to think about your or review your cyber incident response plans. So ensure that your plan, if you have one, caters for more remote working environments. As an employee of a business, you should find out whether your employer has one in place, and if so, you need to understand how it applies to you and what the steps uh, that need to happen if you do suffer a data breach. If the business doesn't have one, then they should really consider implementing one considering the current changing times with COVID-19 and also with the introduction of mandatory data breach reporting in Australia. Another step to consider is deploying two-factor authentication as another layer of protection. This would help accounts from being compromised after a phishing attack, so where we had a user who clicked on the link and they have the compromised user credentials. They would still need that second form of authentication to still get access to that particular account. So two-factor authentication is a really critical one. And just on a side note as well, you also want to consider uh, two-factor authentication in any of your own personal email accounts for example, a Gmail account, Hotmail account. Um, it's very easy to implement and set up. But if you think of your own personal Gmail accounts and what sort of email data is even sitting in your own personal email account, and if that was compromised, what sort of access the hackers would, uh, would be able to see and monitor. So it's a big one. You also want to consider having data encrypted at rest. And this especially relates to work devices uh, which are now being taken home and left in the home environment. So data on the device is secure even if the physical device is stolen, uh, as long as that data is encrypted. It's easy to implement with the latest operating systems such as Windows 10, um, and now comes with BitLocker as standard in terms of its encryption. But it also applies to mobile devices uh, where a mobile device management tool uh, can be installed to wipe confidential data or apps or the entire device 
um, completely in the vent and it's lost or stolen. You also want to update your operating system patches and then remove any administrative privileges. Um, so where I have seen and, and worked on cases where ransomware attacks have been successful is where the victim has been hit with a phishing email, but at the time they were logged in as an administrator. And once they're logged in as an administrator, they have heightened, heightened ability to run other software, uh, install applications, and have an easier way to move through a corporate and company network. Uh, the next one is public Wi-Fi. So as restrictions are easing, uh, people might be going to their local coffee shops to do their work. I would strongly, very strongly recommend against using any public Wi-Fi network without using some sort of secure um, VPN protection as well. So separate to your confidential work data, think about your personal social media accounts and banking details. So when you're logging in on a public network, uh, it's very easy for a criminal uh, or external hacker to set up a Wi-Fi network named exactly the same name as a legitimate one. Um, we see it at airports, um, other public areas like public libraries, uh, and hackers will sit there and monitor the traffic that's coming through on the Wi-Fi network that they have created. Very difficult to determine what is the legitimate one and what is a fake one. So in terms of any free public Wi-Fi networks, you want to be very, very careful uh, in terms of those. So obviously your, your credentials could be at um, risk if you're connecting through those publicly available Wi-Fi connections. And from a user perspective, you always want to read messages carefully, especially emails that contain attachments and or links. So think about what the email is asking you to do, even if it is from an email address that you know and you believe is trusted. Um, so any email that you get, um, even for myself, any email that I receive that has a link in it or that has an attachment on it, already uh, my threat levels go up immediately to really check that particular email. Um, if you're unsure, you want to call the external person to confirm the email and make sure you check that number from a trusted source. Um, so by responding over email, you might actually be replying to a compromised email account in control of a hacker. So it's not a safe way to determine if the original email was genuine. Hover your mouse over the links to identify any URLs to determine whether it's legitimate or not prior to clicking on anything. And another really important point is to notify your IT team if you do identify something suspicious. So this ensures that the business can take appropriate steps to protect the other areas of the organisation from that exact threat um, continuing. So we're under pressure to move to this new model of working while keeping our business functioning and make sure that our time is, in, is spent on ensuring that data is secure. If you've got any concerns in relation to your organisation's data security, then please reach out. We're happy to chat to you further about that if you want any further uh, advice. And that's... It brings us up to um, our question times. Thank you very much to you both. Um, if anyone's got any questions, it would be really good if you sent them through now for the lads. I got a few just to, to kick us off. Um, the, the thing we hear quite a lot of is that Zoom is not safe. Is, is Zoom safe? Um, well, Zoom, um, I would start by saying uh, most platforms are safe as long as you're taking the appropriate steps um, to implement them correctly, as, as I sort of touched on in the presentation. So making sure it's implemented correctly with the right security controls in place um, and also um, that the people who are going to use that platform are trained appropriately in how to use it. 
Um, so yeah, yes, I would say it is safe. Um, it just I used Zoom as a particular example because it was um, it was coming up a lot in terms of um, the media, in terms of the domains that were being registered around Zoom, uh, and it was becoming a very uh, common one to become compromised. And also where you have a situation where applications are provided uh, for free. There's a reason why those applications or tools or products are provided for free. They may not have all the same security um, capabilities that the full um, uh, product is that you would actually buy off the shelf. Just something to consider whenever you're using a free product, um, I wouldn't be considering that as a long-term solution. Okay. We've got a question here from Grant, um, and he says, in an instance where a company might receive an illegitimate change of bank details that originates from within a subcontractor company and then inadvertently pays money to a malicious actor, is there any case law or is it clear on where the liability lies, i.e., does the principal pay again or is the subcontractor at fault for failing to secure their own system? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of um, providing a response to that, I, I suppose I, I don't come from a legal background, more from an investigations background. So we would just break that uh, investigation down from a factual perspective and just uh, present that factually as to what's actually happened. Uh, in terms of um, who is uh, determined to be at fault, um, that's probably more a, a question for, for the legal people to answer. Um, the matters that I've been involved in, they tend to go to some form of mediation to be resolved. Um, but normally, um, to, to go through that sort of process, you want to have all the factual information in front of you so you know exactly um, what's actually happened. So you want to have the right people with the right skills in there investigating these types of matters to ensure that um, the facts that are being presented are, are accurate and correct. It often um, turns into a bit of a, a blame game in those sort of situations. Like the, the, the job that Brendan was talking about earlier, we had what um, we did outside of the investigation on the phishing email, and then the other party also did an investigation on their side too. So it comes down to who, who can provide the evidence of who was actually compromised, um, which always assists with the case as well. Should I get antivirus for my mobile device? Do you, Sean? Yes, 100%. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. you probably did. <laughs> I, I would definitely be looking at any any extra level of protection you can add to your device, um, whether it be mobile or computer. Um, it, it's going to be an extra level. And I know I just touched on um, the use of free products, and there are like free antivirus products that are available. But I'd still even recommend um, having one of those installed because it. it it gives you something there. It's, there's, there's no perfect solution, no matter what product, uh, even if there's a, a review that comes out today in terms of the top 10 antivirus products, everyone will have a different area that they specialize in or, or sort of um, are better than the other uh, competitor in. So not there's no one product that's perfect at everything. So um, it's just a constant um, battle to ensure that you're... Um, you're taking steps to protect yourself and your devices as much as possible. So the the real important thing is is the people um, don't just rely on the technology. It's the people that make the big difference, um, and they're going to be uh, your weakest link in terms of the clicking on the links um, as they okay. come through. Thank you. Um, any antivirus uh, software suggestions? <laughs> For you, maybe multiple, but. Um, <laughs>
Yeah. As I said, yeah, I probably wouldn't um, think of it. I wouldn't put forward a particular brand other than just to say you should be looking at investing in one. Um, if I can use this as an example, um, when I was in the police, there was a, a family that had gone to Harvey Norman um, outlet to purchase a computer for the family home, and that um, that computer came with Norton antivirus and um, subscription for free for I think it was the first three months included free. And this family um, had that running for the three months, but then didn't continue to um, update it or subscribe to the antivirus. So they weren't getting updated um, um, security um, checks that were happening with the new virus um, viruses that were coming out. And unfortunately, that family actually was compromised. Uh, and that computer was actually used by um, hackers in Russia to access multiple bank accounts um, here in Australia. So... I couldn't stress to you enough, uh, it is an important part of, um, of many parts to protect um, your environment. Kerry's cool. um, got a question. Um, what do you think the most likely mistake law firms make in the cybersecurity area? I suppose just with a law firm, uh, they're definitely uh, a hot target for uh, hackers. There's no doubt about that. Um, there is a lot of articles online, uh, news articles in relation to law firms that are being specifically targeted. There was one just recently in New York um, that was targeted uh, and they threatened the law firm to release that information um, that they stole uh, if they didn't pay a ransom. So in terms of um, the risks to the law firm, I say that they're probably just um, the same risk that any business would probably come under. And ensuring that their um, that their employees are taking the appropriate steps to ensure that they're trained in terms of managing um, various systems, um, and just from obviously the confidentiality of of that information. And more recently, um, there was the issue around uh, they referred to as the, the Paradise Papers, um, where the law firm um, overseas in Bermuda had been hacked. Um, and then um, government regulators were then um, getting access to those um, hacked documents um, and there was a big case around around whether um, privilege applies to those particular documents. So, um, look, I think, yeah, it's definitely um, an interesting space and I think, um, yeah, as I said, Law firms probably are in the same boat as, as every other um, corporate as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Kerry came back uh, with some additional information, and she was she's really interested in you know what are the the practices that law firms sometimes have that are just mistakes in 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 the in the sort of the cyber world. Um, I think the, yeah. the the USB one that Brendan brought up earlier is probably the key one. Um, so, so where there's been multiple occasions where we've received a USB from either our client or our clients received a USB from the other side, and when we've sort of done our forensic collection of the USB, there's we can see all this other data on there that's relating to something completely different to the matter that we're dealing with. So, ensuring that you're using like a, a fresh USB or, or one that's been forensically wiped is definitely critical, um, and also encryption on top of that as well, just in case the USB goes missing. And probably just to add to that, Sean, um, when Vish was saying the term fresh, you really want to know what the whole life of that device has been because formatting a, a USB, um, thinking that that's wiped or, or cleaned the device doesn't clean the device at all and that data can be recoverable. So 
it's important that if you're handing any device over um, in any matter, you really want to understand exactly where that device has been. And as Vish said, ideally you want a brand new device that's never been used before, or alternatively a forensically wiped one. Okay. Well, I think we're we're we are finished. We have no no more questions. Um, thank you very much to you both for your time. Um, thank you everyone for joining us. And have a good weekend. <laughs>